Well, good morning again. As we come to our time looking at God's Word, we're starting a, a new series, a two-week series this week and next, on the idea of moving worship. And so really we're thinking about what we do together, especially on a Sunday morning, so Sunday morning worship, and really we're trying to get what we want. We all want a Sunday morning experience that, that does something to us, with us. We want to be moved. And you know, most of the time we assume that moving worship will depend on certain parts of the service, and so like the quality of the sermon or the music. So probably out of luck with one of those, but at least we can be grateful for great music, right? But what we're going to see in this series is that really the, the big point and the claim is that moving worship is all about God, that He is the one who needs to move us. And so if you're a Christian, that's probably not a, a shocking claim. Um, we're used to this idea that we should be God-centered, but it's probably one that we might need to be reminded of. And if you're not a Christian, then that can be a huge claim that Christians would come to church not primarily out of obligation or duty. Uh, we don't really come to church just because we should. We don't just come that we could get something out of it, like an encouraging word or uplifting music. But Christians come because we believe that God will meet with us here, that he will do something. And so I just want to say from the start that although not everyone will share in this belief or be actively aware of it, I, I think it does fit well with a common human need that often we yearn and we wonder and we hope that God will show up and do something. And so if you look around the world, it doesn't take a lot to see all the needs. Certainly so much beauty and potential, but yet so much limitation and brokenness. So many problems beyond control or solution. And so we often wonder and hope and yearn that God would do something. This even happens if you look at the church, and so maybe you look around at the churches in this city or in our country or around the world, and you wonder, like, Shouldn't God be doing something more? So many problems, scandals, poor teaching, human-centered worship. And so we hope that God would show up and do something. And if we're honest, I think we could see that even if we look at ourselves, we look at our own lives, and we see all sorts of opportunity for God to show up. Maybe we're struggling with indifference, we want to believe, but we don't really feel it. We're struggling with how we live. We want to do what's right, but so often we find that we've done what's wrong, sometimes intentionally, sometimes just by neglect. Can't seem to get it right. You see, I think it is a common need, a common hope, that if there was a God, would God show up? And in many ways, I think this is the context for our passage this morning, we're going to be looking at Revelation chapter 4, so just a couple reminders before we read to help us get ready. So Revelation, it's a, a letter really written by John, one of the early Christian leaders, and he receives a, a revelation or an unveiling, mostly in the form of a vision. And it's a revelation for people who are dealing with the real mess of life. And so they're Christians, they're following Jesus, they've made a big change in their life, but they're probably wondering what's going on because as they look around, they see a lot of issues. 
John himself, the author, he's almost certainly in exile. And so his life has been taken away from him and he's been shipped off probably into some sort of prison, um, prison camp because of persecution. This was part of life in the first century Roman world, that Christians were persecuted, not just openly in terms of threat of, of suffering, but also culturally and economically. That they had to choose that if they were going to follow Jesus, it meant not benefiting from many of the joys and the pleasures of the world around them. And so you can imagine as these Christians had joyfully made this choice to follow Jesus, now they might be wondering, where is he? You see this in the letters that Jesus writes to the churches. That's what chapters 2 and 3 are all about. There's seven letters to seven different churches, and they all contain a mixture of correction and encouragement for churches that are in trouble. And so it's into this situation, not too different than ours, that John is given a message that's meant to be of benefit to these Christians. It's meant to help them where they are. Literally, it's meant to bless them. That's what the, the book says at the very beginning, that that reading and hearing and then applying, doing this book was to bless them. And so that's what is going on in chapters 4 and 5 that we're going to look at, that this is part of God's answer to John and then by extension to all of us, that this is supposed to help us. And so just a note that John, uh, Revelation 4 and 5 are really one vision. They go together. We're going to split them up into two weeks. And so Um, There's going to be some challenges with that. For instance, one of the most brilliant pictures of Jesus comes next week. And so we're going to limit ourselves to just chapter 4. But what we're going to see is a picture of heavenly worship. That the first thing God wants John to know in the midst of all this trouble of churches that are struggling and perhaps about to fail, what John needs to know and to see first is a picture of worship. And so moving worship, that's what we're hoping to see. And so as we come to read, let's first pray and ask for God's help to hear. Heavenly Father, we do ask that you would be with us, that as you have promised, that your word would be alive, even as you are alive. Father, we ask for your help, that as you have promised, your spirit would make us alive, that you would open our ears to hear, and would you ready our hearts and our hands to believe and to obey. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So Revelation chapter 4, we're going to read the entire chapter beginning in verse 1. It should be found on page 1030 in the church Bible. So Revelation chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here. And I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and cornelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders clothed with white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumbles and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass, like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. 
The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and each day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and it is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne, and they worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. This is the word of the Lord. So we have our, our main idea ahead of us, so moving worship. Moving worship, really the hope and the goal, the prayer, is that God would move us. And really, I think what we're going to see this morning is that happens when he invites us to center our lives around him. That moving worship, it happens when God invites us to center our lives around him. And so if we get right into it, first we're going to see this invitation that moving worship begins with us being invited up to meet him. And so if you look back down in our passage at the beginning there in verse 1, after this I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. And so this chapter, this vision, it, it begins with this, this time clause of after this. It's an important context that this is after hearing the message for the seven churches facing trouble. You can imagine being John as he's hearing the message for the churches and he's writing it down like a, a diligent um, clerk. And he's writing down the messages of warning, of encouragement in the midst of much trouble and he must be thinking, is this going to work? And after this, he looks and behold. What does he see? Well, he sees a door standing open in heaven. It's this idea of, of a behind-the-scenes uh, look or a backstage pass, kind of access to the control room of the universe. And so I want you to picture a, a really famous photo. I wonder if you know it. It's the Situation Room during the Bin Laden raid, during the Obama presidency. Perhaps you know the picture. The picture, there's a table, and at the head of the table is a general. And to the left of the general is Obama, President Obama, and he's leaning forward with great concentration, apparently watching something probably on a screen. To the right, Hillary Clinton is sitting there, the vice president, and her, maybe secretary back then, and she's holding a hand over her mouth. And around in the back are all sorts of people standing with looks of concern. It's a very gripping picture of a control room, a place of power, of influence, where all the shots were being called. And I want us to notice that this here is a very different scene. Certainly the worldly situation is quite similar. Perhaps you can think of those letters as kind of updates from the field. How are things going out there? Not well. 
So what does that mean for the control room? No great concern. No advisors gathered around, but yet an open door to come and see. You see, it's an invitation to come up, and really the point is to come up and know. The voice says, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. It's an invitation to come up and to know, to understand, to have a perspective changed. There's an illustration that one of my seminary professors used. It's almost 20 years ago now, but it stayed with me until this day. And so imagine just across the kind of a, a plain sheet of paper or a whiteboard, just imagine a parallel line, horizontal line, separating two things. You know, much of life can be described in that way, a line of separation that when you think about our, our scientific investigation, often it's geared toward expanding that line from the known to the unknown of pushing up, of discovering what we do not yet know. But yet there's still a line, a line separating what we know from what we don't. In many ways, that illustration of a line separating is what so many religions and worldviews need to do business with. And so for all of human history, in so many places and times, humans have sensed and wondered about what's beyond that line. And so Ecclesiastes says it this way. It says, when considering the different seasons and time periods of a human life, he says that God has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. That there is this common human awareness and yearning and longing for what is out there, but yet a line keeping it away. You know, there's some who would reject this premise and say that there's, there's no God, there's no uh, divine out there, but I would suggest that you still have to do business with the line. You know, to say there's no God is basically to say that there's no line. There's no unknown. We know it all. And can we really say that? You see, it's a common human experience to have this, this capped awareness that there's something more, but we don't quite know. That's the picture we get here in Revelation chapter 4, that there is a line here. It's heaven, the place of God, but yet there's a big change. That worship, it begins with God inviting us up, an open door. You know, this chapter, it's full of, of Old Testament language and pictures, and so in a way, it's a, it's a New Testament worship service in Old Testament language and image. And so if you want to think about it later, there's so much imagery from Mount Sinai with Moses, from Daniel and his visions, from Ezekiel, Isaiah. So much so that, that this experience is a common um, picture of temple worship. That wherever we see God meeting with human beings, we see much of the same situation, much of the same images and pictures and movements. So much so that this is a very specific experience for John, but yet it is intended for all. That this is what it's like when God meets with humanity. And so we're invited up. And so a couple points before we move on. You know, worship, it is an obligation. We should do it. Worship is a command. We owe it. But in God's goodness, true worship is invited. As you read through the book of Revelation, really through the entire Bible, it's an extraordinary thing that in heavenly worship, no one will be there who has not responded to God's invitation to come up. 
It's part of the beauty of God's throne room that if anyone could coerce worship, if anyone could force people to fall down and to fall over him, certainly it would be God in John's vision, this God who is so powerful and mighty. But yet the chapter ends with this universal acknowledgement that God is worthy of it, that it's right, that he fits the experience. You see, moving worship, it starts with a God who invites And what that means then is that we are those who are desired. It's an extraordinary point, that God wants you here, that you are invited. I don't know if you are invited many places. Maybe you are, maybe you're not. But would you consider when you come to church on a Sunday morning that you are here because God wants you here? He wants to meet you here. And really, he wants, you to, he wants to lift you up to meet with him. And so what are we being invited to? We'll go on in verse 2 here. And I saw a strong, verse 2, And I once I saw, I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And so we are, we are invited to see God on his throne. You know, what God had spoken, now the Spirit has supplied, that God invited and then the Spirit enabled. So John is in the Spirit. What it's meant to say is that it's not a physical transport, and that's okay. It would actually be short-sighted to assume that spiritual is less than physical. But I think more importantly than that, this is not an earthly ability, that the work of the Spirit was needed. Here's Spirit-filled worship the power to see and experience what God says. And I wonder if you notice that the overwhelming vision, the reality of God that he wants John to know is that a throne room. You see this movement of worship, it's being invited up to see God on the throne. In this way, maybe that first point is a little too soft. You see the voice of invitation from verse one, John says it's like a trumpet. It's like a trumpet from a throne room. See, the invitation, it's like a summons. And here we have one of the many contrasts in Christianity, that that God is a king who can and does demand our lives, and yet in worship, he invites us to come willingly. A voice like a trumpet, but yet one that would invite. Maybe you've heard this quote from F. Scott Fitzgerald. He said in an interview, he said, the test of first-rate intelligence is the ability to hold two opposing ideas in the mind at the same time and still retain the ability to function. One should, for example, be able to see things that are hopeless and yet be determined to make them otherwise. This philosophy, it fitted onto my early life when I saw the improbable, the implausible, often the impossible, come true. In Christian circles, you might think of this as the both end. The realization that in God's goodness, he has given us things to hold on to a belief that seems such intention, but yet in his goodness, they come together. Like this overwhelming scene of a throne room in such calm and security, but yet John being entered up from such chaos and discord. You see, the rest of John's vision, it's dominated by God on his throne. And so verse 3, the one who sat there, he had the appearance of of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. And so we're not meant to exactly know what the one who sat on the throne would look like. Notice the description is so limited. It's just one speaking of royalty. The one on the throne is the royal king. 
and around him is the rainbow. It's the picture of judgment and mercy from the story of Noah, the story of a, a world that would need judgment to be right, but yet God in his mercy who would restrain and give grace. And so this picture of a God who is so royal, who is ready to judge, needing to judge, but yet would do it with mercy. Around the throne, verse 4, around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. And so notice everything is, is described in relation to the center throne. And so we have these 24 thrones with elders sitting, almost certainly reflecting God's redeemed humanity. And so you could probably think of it like the 12 um, tribes and the 12 apostles brought together. All the people God was saving here around him with his throne. Notice what they're like. They're dressed in white, purified. I doubt John was like that. They had golden crowns, in a way, sharing and benefiting from the royalty at the center. Verse 5 and 6 were taken back to the throne again, and from the throne there came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And so are you experiencing all the dueling pictures here, the pictures of power and peace? And so on the one hand, we have thunder and lightning, yet before the throne, a sea of glass. You see, in the ancient world, the idea of the sea was the place of chaos and evil and the unknown. John was on an island, and so perhaps he was even aware of that in a special way. But yet when he comes up behind the scenes, what he finds is that the chaos has been stilled. It's calm. It's actually the same way that they designed the temple. In the temple, before you get to the inner sanctuary, there's actually a place that's much described like this, a sea, like crystal, flat and calm. Verse 6, we pick it up around the throne, and on each side of the throne are these four living creatures. And they're described as if it were kind of four corners of the earth, probably representing all of animated creation. And so four representatives, like the four corners, representing all of God's creation, right there with him around the throne in close contact. You see, John, he's being invited to see the world as it should be. God enthroned at the center and everything else he sees in relation to the throne as if that's the proper way of it, that the identity and the location and the meaning of everything else is discovered in relation to God on his throne. And how strikingly different this vision would have been than John's circumstances. You know, John in the first century church, they were dealing with kind of a twofold persecution, one from religious authority, that the religious authorities of the day, both the Jewish and the Greek and kind of the Roman, would have been against them. And they would have looked like it too. You want to talk about temples. The first century church didn't have it. The Romans did, the Greeks did, to some extent the Jews did. So what was at the center of their religious world? How hard would it be to believe that it was God? They're also facing persecution from the civil authorities. Domitian, who quite possibly might have been the the Caesar at this time, um, described himself as our Lord and our God the one who rules by himself. And he had the power and the influence and the might to make it true. 
And so here's John coming up from a world of, of trouble, a mess, a church that seems to be barely making it, an old personal life where he's been exiled, perhaps alone, and he's getting a strikingly different vision. And we're, set, we're told that this vision is the reality that one is worthy of worship. Look again at verse 8. These four living creatures, each of them with six wings, they're full of eyes around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. You notice they're full of eyes, they, they see it all. They're not blind. They're not oblivious. As this description of the throne room goes on, especially in chapter 5, we're going to see that, that this separation of God is not separate from his creation. He's not set, and so it's not like he's set up there and he's not worried about down here. No, it's actually seen. They see what's going on, but yet in their vision they see something more. That there is one who's always worthy to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. This threefold use of holy, it's really this, this idea of being separate, especially morally, that when it comes to, to moral quality, that this one is separate above everyone else. And the Lord God Almighty, it's this combination of words that's really trying to get at God's power, especially his sovereign control. And so it's, in a way, perfect goodness with absolute power. You know how that usually goes how impossible it is to find that combination in our world. You know, I imagine many of you feel like that in your careers, that in order to maintain goodness, to do what's right, sometimes it seems to mean that it cannot achieve power, that promotion and success would be against those things. And on the other hand, to achieve power almost always has meant to limit goodness. That in our best hopes, there are those who would lead us who gain power when disappointment after disappointment, we see that seemingly with power comes corruption. I'm sure you know the saying that power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. You see, that's the world John knows, but yet here in the throne room, he sees this combination of, of goodness and power come together. So much so that any part of creation that knows this joins in the worship. And so did you notice it starts with kind of this general creation, so the picture of the four living creatures, and then it expands out to include what we might think of as special creation, redeemed humanity, the world as it should be and will be on earth as it is in heaven, and the picture is even now. That even though the picture seems to be so different than the one John saw in the day-to-day, -day, it was more real and more lasting, more right. Why? Because look at the picture in the throne room. It's of the one who was and is and is to come. It's the lasting picture. And I'm confident that we're meant to understand and to realize that this is our reality as well, that as real as this vision was for John, so real is the reality in our movement of worship even this morning. One of the commentators says that one of the purposes of the church meeting on earth its weekly gathering is to be reminded of the heavenly existence, the identity by modeling its worship and liturgy on the angels and the heavenly churches worshiping the exalted Lamb as vividly portrayed in these chapters. 
You see, this is our reality. To not be in step with this vision, you kind of get John's experience. If you were up there and you were not in step with this vision, you would be out of step with reality. But like John in the first century church, we need the weekly meeting to remind us. We need God to invite us up to see the throne room as it really is. And the amazing news is that that's exactly what God wants to do. In our first reading in that Old Testament passage in Isaiah, there's this back and forth about whether God is hidden or not, whether he can be known. And it's this picture of the nations, they will come and they will search after God, but they would do so blindly. And towards the end, God says, be gathered together, you survivors of the nations. What have they survived? It's following those idols of wood. Those who have survived that life, be gathered together, be gathered up. You see, he could demand us to get our lives in line. When you see this picture of heaven, he could ignore us, and he would be just fine. Instead, he invites us up to know him. You see, this is the vision for us, and all of God is in on the movement. We're going to see this more next week in chapter 5, but this throne room, it's a picture of the Trinity in action. You know, the Trinity is, is the truth that God is three in one, three persons in one. And so what we see is that a moving worship experience is the Father inviting, the way being made by the Son, and the Spirit transporting the soul. We're going to look at Hebrews chapter 12 just to make this clear. Hebrews chapter 12, the writer is reminding what happens when we gather together. He says, for you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. He's referencing the Old Testament worship, especially on the Mount Sinai. Such a visible expression of God's presence, so much so that people shook in fear. But he says, you have not come to that. Verse 20, For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Pay special attention that he doesn't say you will come. He doesn't say hope upon hope one day. He says, but you have come. You see, this is moving worship. It's a spiritual reality empowered by God himself, the Trinity, the Father inviting, the Son making a way, and the Spirit transporting the soul, so much so that in faith, we who would gather together would see with the eyes of faith this morning a throne room, one who is seated, who is full of both justice and mercy, who before him, the world would be calm and secure, who all of creation would gather together and say, you indeed are worthy. And so what is moving worship for? Well, we're invited in, really up, to see God on his throne, and to finally to center our lives on him. 
You see the end of our chapter, it takes us right to the application. The timing of the passage is noteworthy, and so look in verse 8. These four living creatures, they're praising night and day, and yet in verse 9, whenever they give glory and honor, it extends out to the 24 elders. I don't think this is a picture uh, so much of nonstop singing. Maybe that's the picture of having you have uh, people with harps and hymns all the time. Instead, I think it's a picture of a life centered on the goodness and power of God. That moving worship, it centers our lives around God and his rule. And so we started with this vision of God on his throne, and then we worked our way out to around the throne. And now at the end, all the attention and even our lives, they get recentered back to the center, redirected. Verse 9. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders, they fall down before him who is seated on the throne, and they worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were cre- existed and were created. And so we have a bit of a transition here that while the living creatures, they praise God because of his goodness and his power, this great combination that we won't find anywhere else, the 24 elders, they bring our worship to an even sharper point that the movement of worship is towards the realization that God is worthy of being at the center. We'll see even more reasons to worship God in chapter 5, but for now we just reflect on the beginning. That it is noteworthy and we should take the time to notice that the worship in chapter 4 is so closely linked to creation. It's so closely linked to creation. That wonder at creation is so closely linked to worship. You know, I've used this, referenced this article before, but I think it's helpful and it came to mind again. This was in the spring about a year ago. There was an article titled, Happiness is a Trap. And really, it talks through this idea that um, in modern history, humans have kind of almost fully bought into the idea that happiness would be the end goal and the just reward for a life well-lived. So much so that kind of abundance theory and positive thinking and self-help, all that stuff is kind of built into that main objective, that if we try hard enough and do things just right, um, you can achieve happiness. And the author of of the article, I don't think she's a Christian, but she's gotten to a bit of God's truth, I think. She says, why not pursue wonder? Each of us has experienced wonder, It's as universal an emotion as happiness and fear. Everyone knows the goosebump feeling when we get viewing a grand vista or seeing children take their first steps. It's an experience that makes us feel like a small part of a bigger system, and that in turn makes our problems seem smaller too. You see, the world and the people in it and our experiences are not binary or easily defined. Two things can coexist in opposition to each other, and both can be true at the same time. Wonder embraces life's beautiful, mexy complexity in a way that happiness doesn't. It allows for nuance and depth. It allows for the reality of a simultaneous, sad, and sublime experience. That uncomfortable, balancing coexistence feels more true to me than manufactured conjoling towards happiness. You see, wonder, especially in chapter 4, wonder of creation that leads then to the creator is what convinced the living creatures and the elders 
of the worthiness of God. You see, wonder can capture us in that way. Last weekend, I was away with some of the teenagers on a retreat, and on the drive back, we were driving past kind of this valley um, over in New York, and, you know, there's ice on the cliffs next to us, and down in the valley, there's a river, you know, snow and trees, and it's impossible, even as a grumpy teenager, to not stop and to be overcome with awe. It's the common human experience that something about this world has often, in ways both small and big, has often forced us, even against our own choice, to respond with awe. And the living creatures and the elders, they have figured out something that the rest of the world, apparently, in John's realm, has missed. That that wonder and awe, it's proof that the one at the center is worthy. You see, we long for moments that take our breath away. And in those moments, the wonder should make us wonder. Who is worthy to have willed all that into existence? There's a poet, Elizabeth Barrett Browning. She says, earth is crammed with heaven and every common bush aflame with God. But only those who see take off their shoes. The rest sit round and pluck blackberries. The earth is crammed with heaven and every common bush aflame with God, but only those who see take off their shoes. The rest sit round and pluck blackberries. You know, the Sunday service, the time of coming together, as the writer of Hebrews has written, is a time of coming into a world created and seeing something anew. Thankfully, we leave our shoes on, but it's that type of experience of saying, we have seen that we have come to a creator And it gets even more personal. And the wonder of the immense scope and beauty of the creation is really the wonder of you. John Lennox has made this point. He says that the amazing thing from this passage is that you were created by God's will. That you exist because God willed it. He wanted it. He designed it. He desired it your personality, your appearance, your place in history. You know, often I think we do wonder and kind of marvel at the scope of the universe and creation, but I wonder if you have ever taken the time and the moment and the intention to wonder at your existence. Not in a big philosophical way, but in the way that would say God decided, decided that you would exist. You know, at different times of life, we might be in kind of all sorts of um, complexity about whether we are wanted, whether we're invited, whether we have found ourselves, whether we're on the true path, all sorts of ways we could describe it. John, in this vision, he's invited to come up to a place where these elders representing creation as it should be, what they are most blown away at by is that God at the center, who is worthy to receive glory, honor, and power, he has willed to create. And so it's an important question to say what is at the center of our lives. You see, what can be worth our life? What can be worthy of being at the center? You could think of it in all sorts of ways. What could be your moral center? 
You can think about all the different ways in life that might demand or, or claim to be the center of your life where you would kind of, in the, in, the eye, in the words of the Bible, also the cheesy worship song, cast your crowns, maybe a band title, casting crowns, yeah. You know, what would be worthy of you casting down what you have? Your career would claim that, your job. But could your career or your job be worthy of being your moral center, of telling you right and wrong? You know, your relationships could claim that, both the ones you have and the ones you desire. Could they be worthy of being your moral center? More than that, could they be worthy of saying, I need you to exist? Only in the most cheesy love story. You see, this is a vision that, that redirects and reorients what would be at the center of our life, that not only is there a creator who brings together goodness and power in a way that's unknown throughout the earth, but there is a creator who in relation to you says, I will your existence and I invite your presence to worship. This is a picture of moving worship. You know, some of the early uh, Christian fathers, they'd describe the Trinity um, in descriptions of a dance, of a dance, of a, of a music combined with physicality that would flow together in, in motion that just fit together. In a way, I think this picture of moving worship is a similar thing, that, that it's a dance of invitation and response and so perhaps the question of moving worship for this morning, at least, is are you a good dance partner? Are you a good dance partner? That's why I kind of started with a kind of confronting question this morning at the very beginning of asking, why are you here? Lots of good reasons to be here, to wonder and to question, to investigate. But if we're going to be people of the living God, then we are here to be met by him. That if there is one who has um, created the world, who has controlled it in goodness and power, and who has opened a door and invited you to come in and to see, you would want that. You'd be desperate for it. Almost every week. Almost every week you would come from seeing so many other things. Seeing so much chaos, question, missed opportunity. Not quite satisfying joys and comforts. And you would come to the opportunity of a God who would say, come and know me, see my throne, orient your life around it, and you know that it is my will that you would exist. Moving worship. Invited by the Father, enabled by the Son, moved by the Spirit. Let's pray that we will continue to experience that this morning. Heavenly Father, we admit that often we may feel like heavy weights, stuck in our seats in a way. But Father, we trust and we ask that by your Spirit you would help us to see and to believe this vision that you would help us to see your goodness and power brought together 
in your Son. And for each of us, would we hear your invitation to come to see what's taking place, that our lives would be recentered around you for the wonder of finding the one thing worthy. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.